Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Alberto Cairo. His new book is How Charts Lie, Getting Smarter About Visual Information. He's a leading data visualization expert who, in this book, explores the negative and positive influences that charts have on our perception of truth. We've all heard that a picture is worth a thousand words, but what if we don't understand what we're looking at? Social media has made charts, infographics, and diagrams ubiquitous and easier to share than ever. But so many of us are ill-equipped to interpret the visuals that politicians, journalists, advertisers, and even employers present each day enabling bad actors to easily manipulate visuals to promote their own agenda. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Alberto Cairo. Alberto, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So I started reading your book, How Charts Lie, Getting Smarter About Visual Information, and I was sitting there, my wife was on the couch, and I looked up at her and I said, babe, charts are so good for lying to people. <laughs> well, they are they're also great to tell the truth if you know how to I, use them. She said, that should be the first thing you should say in the conversation. I said, you know what? I'm going to say that. But it's this is such an interesting book because we are inundated with charts, right? Whether it's in the news or whether it's marketing or whether it's, you know, in, in any kind of in textbooks. I mean, and part of it is, you know, the the as as education has developed and we learn about visual learning styles versus auditory, and many people find visuals helpful. But I mean, you 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 seem to have a kind of love love. I don't want to say a love hate, but a love sometimes frustration relationship with charts because they 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 can be misleading. And one of the examples you open the book with is this chart that Donald Trump loved that showed all the red state area territory the counties he won versus the counties hillary won but that that chart's misleading you yeah it is well it is not misleading per se my my relationship with charts is actually love love i love charts um (laughs) and and the reason why i wrote the book is because i want everybody to love charts as well charts maybe can be wonderful they can be they can illuminate us they can really open our eyes to realities that we may not be able to see otherwise. They allow us to see patterns and trends in large amounts of data. But the challenge is that in order to understand a chart correctly, we need to know how to read it, right? And we need to sort of understand what the grammar, the syntax of of that chart is. The chart that you are describing, the one that opens the book, is the map, <clears throat> the county county level results of the presidential elections of uh, in 2016. And obviously, if you envision that map, in your brain, it looks like an ocean of red with a few islands of blue here and there. Well, right. I, mean, I remember before I, before I even saw that chart, mm-hmm. or I think Donald Trump won, or Hillary Clinton won something like one sixth of the counties. 500, around 500 counties, and Donald Trump won yeah. 2,500, more or less. But, yeah, so you won almost 80, per, it's almost eight, one sixth versus five. Correct, correct. And that, but the, the, the chart itself, the map itself, is not misleading per se. What is misleading is how we project what we want to believe onto that map, because all that the map is representing is who won where. So it's representing a reality. It is true that Trump won 
in 2,500 counties, more or less, rounding up, rounding down, and Hillary Clinton won in around 500 counties. But what, and then Trump uses that chart to basically defend the idea that he won on a landslide. When all that that map is representing is territory. It is not representing people because counties that tend to vote Republican tend to be much more sparsely populated than counties that tend to vote Democrat. Democrat, The Democratic Party tends to win in densely populated areas, therefore much more, much smaller in terms of territory, but much larger in terms of population. The point that I make in the book is that, again, the chart per se is not misleading. The problem is that it's a chart that has been misused to do something that it was not designed to do. Again, the purpose of that chart is to show who won where. It's not to show popular support. If you want to show popular yeah, support, yeah, you can have a graph. Yeah. Right, right. Because you argue like that if you use this chart to measure anything but territorial uh, assessment, then it looks like Trump won in a landslide when really Hillary Clinton won, yeah. I think she, she won the got, popular got more vote. votes. And she got more votes than any yeah. other. She, candidate except Obama 2008. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, I, I think she got even more than Obama 2012. Yeah. So it's like, so it makes it seem like Donald Trump amassed this. Yeah. But again, when really it was, Trump, yeah. Trump is, is using this chart all the time. She, he used it recently for, he, he, he posted, he tweeted this map again of the county, county level results of the 2016 election. And he overlaid the sentence, impeach these, meaning take a look at this, the popular support that I have, right? Again, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's, that's a bad use of that map. Because again, that map is not representing popular support. All that is representing is the, the amount of territory that votes for you. Uh, or in which a plurality of the vote goes for you eventually. But again, the chart itself is not a bad chart. It's just that it's been misused. And that's what really drives me crazy, that we tend to project what we want to believe onto the charts, the graphs, the maps that we see every day. And the, the book is a warning against that, essentially. Yeah, and then you also talk about the kinds of charts Democrats like to use, these bubble charts, where they show how sort of like, it, 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 it sort of favors... The the visual the visual sort of effect favors the per, the, the party that wins in densely populated areas. So they have these bubbles, they use bubbles and, so, of different sizes, and but then the bubbles only represent the amount of votes that the winning party got or the winning candidate got on each county, and that is also misleading if you don't know how to read that chart because you are obscuring the fact that there are plenty of Trump voters in sort of democratic counties and vice versa. There are plenty of democratic voters in Trump areas or in Republican counties, right? So what I propose in the book is that, first of all, perhaps a single map is not the solution. You need two maps, one for Republican vote and another one for Democratic vote. But if what you want to discuss is popular support for each one of the parties or each one of the candidates, perhaps a bar graph will do the trick. It's just just do a bar graph showing the amount of votes, the total number of votes that each one of the candidates got. And then that that chart will enable a discussion about, pop, about popular support. The, the book is all about how charts can enable meaningful discussions. But in order to have that discussion, you need to use well, good charts that are correctly used. Now you also, I, I learned a little bit about your musical taste in the book too. But you and I know, and I learned that you're not you, you're not all that familiar with Kid Rock. But for research, you were on his website, and he has a he sells merchandise where you can get this map of the United States where most of it is red, mm-hmm. and it says United States of America, and then there's little patches on the coasts of green on, on the west coast, and a little bit in like it looks like Colorado or New Mexico mm-hmm. or something, mm-hmm. and then a little in the northeast, and it says the rest of that is. Dumb fuckistan. 
Yeah, he, no, he no, sells his no, T-shirt in his website. That, that no, you take mm-hmm. you, you take you take offense to this because you're like, look, I live in dumb fucking <laughs> but it's in Florida. Yeah. You're like, I live in a day. So you're like, you really yeah, you yeah. need a much more uh, accurate chart. So did you write to Kid Rock and tell him? That? <laughs> no, I didn't. I tweeted at him though. So when I saw, I, I got interested. The, the whole story began because I saw that Kid Rock was uh, pushing the on Twitter. He was saying that he was planning to run for the Senate. Uh, in Michigan, I think. And then I went to his website. I didn't know much about Kid Rock. I just went to his website. The best song I like of his is that duet, duet he did with Sheryl Crow. Uh-huh. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> where they're singing about like, you know, they're both like, uh, what is it called? Uh, I forget. He does this great duet. It's kind of like a country rock balladish kind of thing about this couple uh-huh. who's on, on the road yeah. and they're kind of, they're in love, but they're like separated and angry. It's a great song. Other I'm than that, not, I'm not a huge I cannot fan. discuss his musical merits, but <laughs> but but when I saw that T-shirt, and for the listeners to understand what we're talking about, the T-shirt depicts again the results of the 2016 election, but at the state level. Therefore, Florida is entirely red, and North Carolina is entirely red, just because there were states that were in which Donald Trump won a plurality of the vote. And he divides, he basically labels red states are the United States of America and blue states are Pakistan. basically. That's what he says. And the point that I make in the book is that, well, if you want to, talk, I mean, I, this is sort of like tongue-in-cheek discussion. I said, if you really want to show the boundaries between what you call the United States of America, meaning red America, and um, Pakistan, which is the blue, the blue America, you need to go down to the district level or to the county level at least, because I live in South Florida, I live in Miami, and Miami is not the United States of America. Miami is quite democratic, right? It's like it, it's um, Pakistan. And in North Carolina, I used to live in Chapel Hill. Uh, North Carolina, which is a college oh, yeah, town, yeah. and it's just extremely democratic. Therefore, it's not the it's not the United States of America, right? But it's a tongue in cheek example to see again how we project what we want to believe, how we recruit or we get charts that basically we use or we we, we twist or distort to basically push our own agendas. And this happens all over the, the political and ideological spectrum. It's not exclusive to conservatives or Republicans. It happens to everybody. And the book, as you know, contains examples from both sides, from all sides of the political spectrum. Yeah, you have this, it's interesting, you have this this graphic that I think appeared on Fox News, and they had they had a, a bar graph, a simple two-column bar graph, and it was on the one side, it said, you know, um, it's thirty five percent now, and, and it was it was when the Bush tax the Bush tax expired, expire, and they represent a change of like four percentage points. Right, and they truncate right. the bars, so they, they right. They, so the bar, the four percent, looked like it was really twenty percent higher, like a, even it, though it was it, only it was like 4% five times higher. the size, just because they are truncating yeah. the vertical axis. But I have another example from the from the Obama administration in which they did exactly the same thing with graduation rates in high schools, and they truncated. They cut off the the vertical axis of the chart, therefore exaggerating the differences between the bars. And so again, it happens to everybody. It happens we all over the political spectrum, right? Uh, distortions of charts are very are very common, and I think that it, it may benefit anybody to learn how to spot these kinds of distortions uh, in order to learn how to defend ourselves against them. And that would be the term that I didn't even know existed. That would be if we that uh, William. Bal- Balkan coined the term graphicacy, mm-hmm, like literacy, uh, that, 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 we, that we should, as part of basic educational mm-hmm. fluency in America, you kind of, you're, on the, you're, you're saying that graphicacy would be really helpful because we are so bombarded with charts. And, and I think that it, it's, it's, it's sort of deceptive, like I, I, intuitively, like 
you it's not like you argue in the book it's not rocket science any any person with a little bit of time can learn the basics of chart of, of how charts work mm-hmm. but intuitively i mean because we are we are such emotional creatures and and you know visuals can be misleading things like confirmation mm-hmm. bias it, 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 you know we we you know irrationality quickly goes to rationalizations we are so vulnerable to be misled. We are, we are, and we are all are uh, very vulnerable to that phenomenon because, I, as I explained in the book, charts are sometimes approached as if they were illustrations or photographs or something like that that we can sort of interpret sort of unconsciously. And the point that I'm making in the book is that we need to change our frame of mind. We need to um, interpret charts or approach charts as if they were visual arguments or arguments made visual, like if they were a piece of text. If you want to interpret a piece of text, you cannot ex- assume that you understand it just a, at a quick glance. You, right, right. If, if somebody were making an argument, you would you would look at their premise exactly, first. Exactly. The premise, the premise, the sources, etc. Right, and then you might say that, hey, okay, they're or that, hey, all their their uh, the, the steps of their argument are, are right, but the premise is wrong. Mm-hmm. Or, or right, the sources. Or you, or you will the, try to read between the lines, which is something that you right. can do with charts. Is this chart showing a sufficient amount of information to display the reality that it claims to be displaying? Right, because one of the tricks that people use sometimes to lie with charts is to conceal important information information and only show the data that that again confirms their own agenda or pushes their own agenda yeah and that's i mean that's it's interesting how like and i don't know if that's because uh that we i don't know if it's ignorance or or what it is that we are maybe it's the that we don't have graphicacy because the some basic critical inquiry that a lot of people would use mm-hmm. Just get shut off when you put a chart yes, up. But that is because, again, because charts are visual. And whenever we are, whenever we, they are not textual. They, uh, they don't look textual. They are textual in the sense that they require attention to be interpreted. But as long as they are visual depictions of information, again, our brain, for some reason, unconsciously tend to equate them with images that we can sort of understand intuitively. And that is not true. Fortunately, we can overcome that impulse. We can sort of stop ourselves, take a look at the chart, try to read it, try to take a look at its source, try to see what it, what it, what is, um, a, what is showing, and then try to interpret it uh, at the three different levels that I describe in the book, right? It's, which are the symbolical level, the grammatical level, and then the semantics level, meaning how to read the chart per se, which is something that we all learn to do in school, right? It's like, what is this axis? What is that axis? That's the grammatical level. We all learn that in elementary school and in middle school. But that is not the level of understanding that I am more interested in in the book, because that's super basic to explain. And I do that in the book very quickly in chapter two. But then I quickly move on to the semantics level, the meaning. How do you extract meaning from a chart, right? That's the tricky thing, because then is when you start dealing with problems with projection, confirmation bias, motivated reasoning, your own ideological or or cognitive biases or, or, or prejudices when you're appro- appro- approaching certain kinds of information, right? That's the semantics layer of the chart and it's the trickiest one to understand. When did you figure out you love charts? When were you like, oh. my life is going to be charts? <laughs> that happened many years ago. I have always loved uh, visual information. So I am a reader. I love to read also like actual text, right? But at the same time, I've always been used to summarizing whatever I read in the form of diagrams. So whenever I read a nonfiction book, I'm always taking notes uh, and, and sort of writing down the main ideas of the books that I write. And then I connect those ideas with lines as if I am designing a network diagram. And that network diagram that I 
draw by hand works as a, as a memory aid, as a mnemonic device that later on, years later, can help me remember, remember what that book was about. Just think, I would love to see your notes that uh, on books. That sounds so interesting. That's that. What what do you write it down in? Like a moleskin? Yes, yes. I have I have notebooks and or, or just a piece of paper. I mean, it can be it can okay. be anything. Yeah, yeah. So I take notes that like that. And I have been doing this because of my dad. Um, my dad is a medical doctor, also from Spain. I, I was born in Spain, and my dad told told me taught me how to draw these kinds of diagrams. So he sort of educated me. And then it all you know it all came down from there. It's like I I, I started learning a little bit. I I learn I. I Read comic books. I I also started getting interested later on in maps. I, I've always loved maps and diagrams and information graphics or explanation graphics, like cutaways of objects and machinery, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And later on, when I started my career as a as a visual designer as a, and as a journalist, I also started getting interested in data visualization, which is the technical ner- name for charts for for what I what I explain in the book. When did you get into Judas Priest? Because you talk about a chart. You, you talk about a chart in the book that's misleading because it 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 says that all these metal bands are from Scandinavian well, the, countries. The chart right? is actually not misleading. I, I so just to understand what again for your for the listeners to understand what we are talking about, it's a map that depicts the concentration, the density of heavy metal bands in Europe. So it, it, imagine a map of Europe subdivided in, by countries, and then each one of the countries is colored with a different shade of gray, darker or lighter, according to the number of metal bands per one million people. And uh, southern countries in Europe, Spain, Portugal in general, tend to be lighter, so lower density. And northern countries in Europe, such as Finland, Sweden, and Norway, tend to be much darker because the concentration of heavy metal bands and quite extreme heavy metal bands uh, tends to be much higher, but the map is not is not misleading. It's actually a very good. It's a very good map. The, I used it in the book um, to explain how important it is to verify where the information comes from. Because I saw that map, and I, I'm not a huge fan of very extreme heavy metal, but I like you know hard rock and '80s classic heavy metal, and that's what Judas Priest comes in. Um, you know, Judas Priest is up yet again to be in the. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah. I don't know if they're going to get I'm in. I'm not but surprised. They're, they're, I mean, those folks have been nominated. For like for like 70 years or something. I'm, not, I'm exaggerating, but they have been around since the 60s. It is amazing that they oh, yeah. play like, with that level of energy. It's, it's incredible. Anyway, so the map is not is not misleading. So what I did in that case was that I retweeted that map when I saw it, just because I said, oh, this is so fantastic. And I retweeted it. And then I thought twice. I said, wait, wait, wait a second. I am going to verify where the data comes from, because it may be that this map is depicting what we could consider heavy metal bands, but it could also be that they are also including in the in the in the database bands that I would not consider heavy metal. Bands that I have like seen. poison. You said poison. Poison, like, for example. If you go to the Wikipedia page about heavy metal, you will see poison mentioned. And I every rose has its thorn is such a great thing. <laughs> yeah, correct. But it's not metal. It's like it's a great character. Yeah, yeah, it's a ballad. It's, it's not metal. Pop, it's not it's metal. pop rock. I mean it's a fine band. Yeah. I don't have anything against poison or other bands that I have seen labeled as heavy metal, such as Bon Jovi. <laughs> I have seen Bon Jovi. Yeah, Bon, bon Jovi, metal. that's crazy to call Bon Jovi. I mean, Bon Jovi is pop rock, even hard rock in some cases. It's a fine, it's a great band, but I would never call them heavy metal. But I have seen them labeled as heavy metal. So if I if I see a map like that, right, I would immediately go to the source and check where uh, and check the data. Take a look at the data. What is it that you are calling heavy metal? Because if the chart is not depicting what what the 
chart says or claims that it is depicting, then the chart is misleading. They are counting things that should not be counted. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcasts, projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ken Skillman, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Jennifer Spate, Ben DeHart, Joel Wentz, Jordan DeMice, Samantha Conower, Simone Garabedian, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Cress, Stephen Rowe, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jody Stevenson, Andrew Stravitz, Glenn Stalker, Greg Johnson, and Kai Winkenegg. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. So you listen to the book, Five Ways That Charts Can Mislead Us. And and it's interesting because you're like, look, I don't want to say all of this is malice all the time. Because, you know, you say that I don't want to attribute to malice. It could just be laziness or <laughs> or or an oversight. or So oftentimes, but it could be unintentional or unintentional. But the first way is, right, they can lie by being poorly designed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this is an instance where, uh, you know, the, 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 the pictures maybe are misleading intentionally or unintentionally so that the chart yeah the, the chart may be distorted like the example that you mentioned before the bar graph with a truncated vertical axis right that exaggerates in excess the, the differences between the data that's one way in which charts can be distorted so that's certainly the first way yes and you and you use an example too that i think uh somebody used in a in a, in a political debate about abortions and yes cancer screenings yeah. and planned parenthood and and the data wasn't wrong, mm-hmm. but the chart made the data look that look like the, the so the, the chart the chart was used by Representative Jason Chaffetz in a, in a debate about Planned Parenthood about whether the government should keep um, subsidizing Planned Parenthood and they used this very misleading chart to attack Planned Parenthood and it's misleading because it shows two lines changing at the, at the same rate, one of them going up and the other one going down. So they show that the number of life-saving procedures, namely cancer screening procedures that Planned Parenthood conducts, drops quite dramatically in the past 10 or 15 years for several reasons. Obamacare could be one of them. But the problem is that the other line that they show is a, a red line showing the number of abortions. And it basically makes the number of abortions look that, like they have doubled in the past, in the past 10 years. And that is because they are distorting the, the axis. 
Yeah, so it looks like, it looks like there's the invert the directly proportional. Yeah, they look, it looks like an X. The answer screen going down. It looks like it, an, like, X. It's an X. Yeah. And when you take a look at the data, you notice that, it, yeah, I mean, the number of cancer screenings dropped at a certain rate, but the number of abortions didn't change that much. I mean, it changed between 300,000 and 330,000. So it's an increase of a 10%. They didn't really double, but they exaggerated the axis of that particular line to exaggerate the increase a, of, of a number of abortions or pr- to push an agenda, basically, to say, well, you're you are conducting tons of abortions and blah, 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 right? And the, the chart was misleading. That's one of the few cases in the book that in which I think that that chart was designed to lie in purpose. Um, I think that that was trying to push an agenda. But more often than not, as you say, what happens is that a chart is designed with the best of intentions, but it ends up misleading people just because we don't know how to read it or because we don't pay enough attention to it or because we don't try to verify what it says or what, because we project. We project what we want to believe. And this is the – of all the five, I feel like – and we'll get into the, the next four in a second. But of all the five, I think you could substitute argument for chart here. And you could see this is done with textual arguments mm-hmm. too. But this is the one I think that's probably the most visual – visually oriented that it's it's probably hardest harder to do with text because it, it's, we pick up uh poorly structured or logical fallacies quicker in text than we do in a badly designed Image. chart like it's much easier to pick up a badly designed rhetorical device mm-hmm. or argument then the chart just somehow it, it's it's disarming and it sneaks up on it us. is because we tend to sort of again unconsciously equate charts and numbers with objectivity and truth seeing is believing seeing is believing right and that can be that may be true again charts are very powerful charts are wonderful but again we need to approach them critically we need to become better readers of, of charts the case of that of that the chart about Planned Parenthood I usually use that one and a couple of other examples to basically to basically compare chart making to writing. So, and I say, well, charts that do these, they are visual hyperboles. They are they are hyperbolizing the data. They are exaggerating the data, right? And sometimes charts are understatements. They they try to basically minimize the changes in order to lie to you as well. So, if you put yourself in that frame of mind again, in which charts are like text in all these senses of the word, you may be you may become more prepared, better prepared to approach charts as a critical reader. Now, the second way that you say charts can uh, lie is by displaying dubious data. Now, this is one of those things where, again, it could happen through malice or, 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 yeah. or just ignorance, you know, because data is hard to find. And I mean, you and, and, you and you note that people that like offer corrections like if you're when you're analyzing your media diet, like I guess you you look at your diet regularly. What am I eating? Like when you look at your media diet, you say it's it's a good sign if the stuff that you're consuming regularly has corrections because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. then they're aware. That's of a great sign. That's a great. That's the first rule to identifying a, a, a media source that you could trust that you can trust. If they issue corrections regularly and visibly, that's a sign of of trustworthiness. Yes. So, but that's again, that's one that sort of it, it's on the old adage, right? Garbage in, garbage out, mm-hmm. right? If you put if you put d- data in that bad data, yeah, you got bad data, and you're there, you know, it's not you can have the best chart in the world, it can have all the yeah. best proportions and no misleading visual and this, and this is related to the discussion before about how important it is as a reader, as a regular citizen, to whenever it is possible before posting in chart or graph or map or on social media or before believing 
one of those charts, to take a look at the primary source, not for hours, but just for 30 seconds. Just try to go to the primary source, see, try to see where the data comes from, and try to see whether data, wh whether the chart is measuring what it claims to be measuring. I have another example that is not in how charts lie, but I use sometimes in, in talks. So I have a friend of mine, a friend of mine is a statistician who specializes in public health statistics. And she showed me one, a couple of charts that display the rates of a violence within families, right? Intra-family violence. Well, when you compare two different sources for the same phenomenon, the rates of intra-violence, uh, intra-family violence in the same countries may vary a lot. Let's suppose that you're comparing Spain to Spain in the in two different sources, right? What is the rate in Spain or in the United States? On source one, the rate of violence inside families is enormous. And then in the same country in Spain, the other source tells you that the rate of violence in families is really low, is really small. Well, why that happens? Why does why is that why is the difference so large uh, between the two sources that are reporting basically about the same phenomenon? Well, if you go to the sources, if you read the fine print, you may discover that source number two, which is the one that reports a very low number for Spain of violence in families, they are only counting physical violence. But then you go to source one, which also reports violence in families, and you discover that they are also counting verbal violence. Therefore, the rate is much higher. Which one of them is correct? None of them is correct. Both of them are correct. It's only that you need to know, you need to identify what it is that they are calling violence before you can interpret the chart correctly. And that would sort of relate closely to your third way, like lying by dubious data or insufficient, insufficient. data. There's just that, I mean, you know, that's an instance where the data set is maybe not agreed on or something is ignored. And again, sometimes this is for the purpose of concealing, but sometimes this is just... It's an oversight. It's an oversight. People sometimes, just don't know what yeah, they're looking Sometimes we'll report, for example, just the average of a, of a certain variable, right? And, and one example that appears in the book, or, the, or a national rate, in the book I have this example of the murder rate, the national murder rate yeah, in the yeah. United States. And the, in the, you, you take a look at that chart, and in the past four or five years, the murder rate in the United States is increasing again, unfortunately. But it is very easy to read too much into that chart and describe the chart as the United States is becoming a more dangerous country. That is not true. And it is not true because most places in the United States, the murder rate has not changed that much in the past five or six years. The United States is a pretty safe country. The problem is that there are certain areas, certain places in the United States in which violence has increased so dramatically in the past half a decade or so that they distort the national rate. Right. So in order to understand that chart correctly, you also need to be aware of these extreme values or outliers that may be affecting the patterns that you see in the chart. All right. And those patterns need to be or those outliers need to be disclosed also by the author of the chart, obviously. But we journalists sometimes um, we tend to oversimplify things. Right. Say, well, the readers don't care about all these numbers. They are going to be overwhelmed if they see all these numbers. And we default to the simplest representation which is the average or the, just the national rate without discussing data that is essential to understanding what's going on. Yeah, and you talk about that, especially in terms of income, that very often this is why yeah. oftentimes it's better to use the median mm -hmm. as opposed to the mean or the average because... Yeah, I, I, the, it, the example that I put in the book is that if there are nine, nine people in a bar and all of us make you know, the average... Uh, a personal income, which may be around 25000 30000 or $40,000, right? There are nine of us 
right? The average will be 30,000 or 40,000 because we all make the same amount of money. But suddenly Bill Gates enter in the bar or whatever we are, and we are all millionaires, right? Just because the average salary becomes millions and millions of dollars. That is one case in which the median is much better than the mean. The mean is basically adding up all those salaries, 10 salaries together, and then dividing by the number of people, 10 people. And that is a very distorted number. The median is basically the number that divides the salaries of these 10 people in two halves of the same size, right? Five of these people will have lower salaries and five of these people will have higher salaries. The median is that number that divides this distribution in two halves of equal size. And sometimes it's the best, uh, what statisticians call measure of central tendency, the best average that captures the reality of the data. You also say that there's been some dubious uh, charts around porn. <laughs> there, was a, there was a chart that was trying uh, to show that's like... a great example, what, yeah. Yeah, well, you, you talk about right, the book about Pornhub and and, the, and trying to show like where, like yeah, where, yeah. what what sort of places consume that's the a, most porn. That's a very and you're like, funny and you're like, story. We should tell. And you're like, no, 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 we'd have to, we'd have to yeah. look at the data differently, so this, right? The story is actually quite funny. This comes from a story from an article that was written by a Chris Ingraham, Christopher Ingraham, who is right now a reporter for the Washington Post, a great reporter, great writer. Um, anyway, so a, a while ago, he published this story that was based in, in, in data uh, provided by Pornhub. So Pornhub is a, basically a porn website that apparently they disclose their data every now and then. So Chris got their data and he visualized the data. He created a chart with the data. And he discovered that most the average consumption of porn in different states is more or less the same everywhere, right? But suddenly, one of the outliers or the outlier, the, the state that basically had a, a higher, much higher porn consumption per capita is Kansas, <laughs> Why Kansas? It's like, I just see the chart. It's like, what is there to do out there? Well, I, I mean, don't my, know. My wife yeah. grew up. I don't know. It's I don't not know. as exciting as these. But then what know? he discovered was that Kansas is really not an outlier. That's just a glitch in the data. Because whenever, whenever you access a website, if you're not using uh, a privacy, privacy measures like a, a VPN, for example, that obscures or hides a, your IP address, the IP address of your computer, Whenever you enter a website, that website knows where you are, more or less physically. They can locate you. Well, you're in Florida, you're in Kansas, you're in New York, whatever, whatever. So if nobody used privacy measures, the chart will be correct, right? It will capture the data correctly. The problem is that there were many cases in which people were accessing the website using privacy measures, like a VPN, for example. And when the website cannot uh, detect where you are, it locates you at the uh, in the geographical center of the United States. It equals, <laughs> and and the, the geographical center in the United States is in Kansas. <laughs> so therefore, it seemed that, for example, if I access Pornhub with a VPN, it will locate me in Kansas. If they didn't correct, if they have not corrected for this glitch in the data. So the moral of the story is: don't go to Kansas looking for <laughs> don't a great go time. To Kansas. People are not any more perverts <laughs> than anybody yeah, else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. now you're going to be disappointed. <laughs> stay if you're looking for perverts, stay in your own neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, you also talk about how charts can lie by concealing or confusing uncertainty, yeah, that's right? Which is, mm-hmm. and that's like I mean, part of it, you know, cognitive dissonance, right? We don't like dissonance. We don't like uncertainty. But we like, need to you know, get used to it. That's one one of the points yeah. that I'm making in the book is that. We need, as readers, as citizens, as people, we need to stop 
expecting to understand things again in in the blink of an eye. In just like, we need to pay attention and understand that reality is complex, reality is uncertain, and we need to embrace that. That's how things are. And sometimes things are ambiguous. Some things are sometimes things are have lots of nuances. That's the uncertainty part of charts, right? And the challenge with charts is that they look very clear cut. They look very precise. They look very accurate. And that can be very misleading if you don't force yourself to understand that those numbers that you're seeing in the chart may be surrounded by a cloud of uncertainty. The perfect example is, and it is in the book, is how polls are reported, right? So if you have an election poll and you see that Candidate A is going to is predicted to get forty seven percent of the vote, and candidate B is predicted to get forty five percent of the vote. You cannot claim that candidate A is going to get more votes than candidate B just because you don't know what the margin of error is. Right, right, right. That's right. the level of uncertainty. You need to take that into account. Yeah? The, the the difference between those two numbers is not what we what statisticians would call statistically significant, meaning. Significant, meaning real, right? It's not, I am oversimplifying the explanation. And this is like when people said, like, we were decrying all the polls in 2017. Yeah. Well, no, they were pretty accurate. There's just a margin of error. It, 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 yeah. Especially, the, especially the, the popular vote. It was yeah. quite the accurate. Popular vote, what, the, the polls, uh, with the popular vote at least, they were pretty accurate. They were very accurate, actually. They were within the margin of error in many cases. It's only that, again, we want numbers or we expect numbers to be accurate and precise and to tell the truth. And we need to abandon that idea. Uh, people who deal with numbers every day will always tell you numbers, particularly when we, when we deal with social statistics or things that are, measure, that are measuring people or social phenomena, they are always very uncertain. And there is nothing we can do about that. I mean, those are the numbers that we have. Those are the numbers that we need to deal with. That's the best evidence that we have. But it is never completely accurate to the decimal point. We always need to imagine that these numbers are, again, are surrounded by a certain level or a certain degree or a certain cloud of uncertainty. And that's how things are. And and uh, when you can emotionally handle that, you're going to be much better at being a critical thinker. Yes, you are. You're not going to have these things. Because it it seems like if, if you're not able to handle that, you're going to rush to certainty, or you're going to ask the data to 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 yeah. be more certain we, than it is. We deal, it we deal with that all the time down here in Florida with hurricane predictions, right? It's like you see the National Hurricane Center predicting where a hurricane may go, and they show you a map showing where the hurricane may go, and at the end the hurricane ends up going, you know, 100 miles to the right or to the left or what was predicted. And the reaction of many people is to say, well, the National Hurricane Center knows nothing. All these forecasts are fake news. And that's not the right response because you're expecting too much from these forecast models. All these forecast models are probabilistic. They are just telling you, well, this is a range of possibilities of where the hurricane may go. You cannot expect that the line in the center of this forecast map is going to be the true path of the storm. It may it may veer towards the left or to the right or up and down. We cannot tell. We are just giving you a range of possibilities. And we all need to get used to seeing that, to start seeing reality more probabilistically. Yeah. And the last way you talk about there were charts it can lie is is by suggesting misleading patterns. And again, this might be one that I think where charts have an advantage over text. So you can kind of do this rhetorically too. But I, again, I think that our our when we're hearing it or reading it, we probably interrogate the text more than mm-hmm. when a pattern is presented. It becomes very, very persuasive. When you see it, yeah. it becomes extremely persuasive. And it is difficult to unpersuade yourself or basically convince yourself that you're not seeing what you're really seeing. Again, this is related to projection. And I, I, I have many examples in that chapter of how we project 
right? Um, I have this example, it's difficult to describe, but it's basically a chart that sort of proves, and you need to imagine the word proof here with lots of quotation marks, um, proves that cigarette smoking is good for your health or that cigarette smoking increases life expectancy. It is a chart that shows that there is a positive correlation between cigarette consumption per capita and life expectancy. And the, co <laughs> and the correlation is true at the national level. The more cigarettes a country consumes, the higher the life expectancy of that country tends to be on average. That correlation is true. It's a positive association between those two numbers. The higher the number of cigarettes, on average, the higher the life expectancy. Yeah, and that's probably because of affluence. Exactly. Yeah, right. Richer countries can afford yeah. more cigarettes. But if you're yeah. if you're a cigarette smoker, you may be prone to basically project your own beliefs, saying, "Oh, well, yeah, the, all these things that doctors are telling me that cigarette consumption is bad for my health." That is actually not true. Take a look at this chart. This chart is actually showing. Blah, blah. It's very easy to project that belief and use the chart to confirm what you want to believe. I want to keep smoking. And this chart is showing me that life expectancy increases uh, with cigarette consumption as well. I mean, it, it, wealth is the variable that we are not contemplating, right? The richer a country is, the more cigarettes people can buy. But at the same time, people can also access better healthcare and better diets and safer environments as well. So the loss of life expectancy that you may get because of cigarette consumption gets balanced out by the increase caused by better healthcare. Everybody needs to read David Hume on Kozak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah. But I mean, Hume is great about this, right? Because he knows the great Brit uh, British philosopher, Scottish philosopher. He knows that human beings are addicted to causality. We, anytime there's any possibility for correlation, mm -hmm. Human we, immediately jump. Yeah, we immediately jump. Yeah, we immediately jump. And again, it happens to everybody. This is one of the challenges that I warn against in the book, that it is very easy to believe that we are smarter than everybody else. And the warning in the book is that that's not true. It's like, don't trust yourself. Always pay attention. Become more mindful of what happens inside of your brain, right? And, 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 and pay attention at how, for example, opinions appear inside of your skull. Because we all tend to believe that the way that we create our own opinions and our own beliefs is through a reasoning process. So we gather the facts, we analyze the facts, and then we come up with the opinions that we have. And that is not how the brain works. Yeah, yeah. Very often we figure out what we want to believe and First. then we look for reasons to And then we look for reasons to believe that, right? That's actually the process that we all follow more often than not. But we can become more mindful of that and we can control that process a little bit better. You conclude the book with a really moving story about Jay Gould, mm -hmm. who is the great evolutionary uh, biologist who got diagnosed with cancer. A, a form of a for, cancer. A very aggressive that, form of cancer, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he looked at the charts, and the charts would be like, ah, you don't have long, very long he looked at the number. He interpreted actually, the data. Actually, he, he yeah. looked at the number, and his doctor apparently told him, according to a beautiful essay that he wrote at the time, well, later, after he was diagnosed, diagnosed, the doctor told him, well, on average, people who are in your condition who have these cancer tend to live X number of months, like six months or seven months. I don't remember. On average... But he was an, he was a, he was a highly educated person used to dealing with numbers every day. And he understood that he was not average. He was not an average person. Given his condition, he, the fact that he was relatively young when he was diagnosed, the fact that he had access to the better, the best healthcare that he could possibly have and many other factors, he concluded that he was not an average patient. 
therefore, it was much more likely that he was going to live longer than that average of six, seven, one months or one year or something like that. And that proved to be true. I mean, he lived, you know, 20 years longer or something like that after he was diagnosed with this very aggressive form of cancer. That's a great example of how to recruit facts and look at the facts um, a, a sort of like, like coldly and coolly and, and try to assess their validity and their usefulness for your own case, for your own life, rather than jumping to conclusions. Oh, I'm going to live only six months, right? Don't careful. Stop yourself. That may not be true. Look deeper into the data. Think quite carefully about it and then weigh your, the different, the different pieces of evidence that we have in order to reach a conclusion. And you don't have to be a world famous scientist no, to do it. You don't it. need to uh, do that. Fact, no, not at all. No. Anybody could do it. They could just pick up. That's that's the positive. That's the positive message of the book. The book is is a manual of how to become a more aware chart reader with the underlying message that anybody can read charts correctly. And not only that, anybody can design charts. That's another message that I convey in the book. Although I don't teach how to design charts, but uh, if you become a, a good chart reader, you are basically halfway through into becoming a good chart designer. Well, Alberto, thanks so much for writing the book and for making me a better chart reader and talking talking with the, the book about me about it with me for a little bit. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, "Hey, this is great. Check it out." Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Alberto for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, how charts lie. You won't regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well. <laughs>